Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And now from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files with your host, David Axelrod. You know, it is easy in these rancorous times uh, to take a very dark view of where we are uh, as a country. And then you meet extraordinary people who have made an enormous difference in the lives of others. Uh, and it makes you realize that there are so many good things that are happening out there. Uh, and this week, I want to talk about the Special Olympics on its 50th anniversary. And I do so as the father of a Special Olympian. Uh, today, we're going to be talking to Tim Shriver, son of Eunice Shriver, one of the founders of the Special Olympics. Uh, Tim has taken it global, uh, and millions of people have benefited uh, from this program in a really touching and important way. Uh, like his mom and his dad, Sergeant Shriver, Tim is a force of nature who has a lot of uh, great insights, not just into how we treat uh, people with differences in our society, but the broader questions we're facing. I had a great conversation with him. Here it is. Tim Shriver, welcome to Chicago, back to Chicago. I know your family's played a, a big role in the history of this city. Uh, we can talk about that. And uh, welcome here for the 50th anniversary of the Special Olympics, which is of personal meaning to me as I am the father of a longtime Special Olympian. And a very has, good one. <laughs> yes, she's, yeah, if, if those medals were actually gold, she would be Fort Knox. <laughs> but uh, but what, what's more valuable to her is the experience that she's had in competing, and uh, I'm really grateful for that. Uh, we, will, we will get to that. I want to talk a little bit about your own uh, journey, and um, as is probably known to, you, you come from two famous families in a sense. You're... Uh, the, the larger family being the Kennedy family, your, uh, your mom, Eunice, uh, was um, the, uh, the sister of President Kennedy and Robert Kennedy and Ted Kennedy and um, part of this family that has a kind of a mythic uh, role in, in American history of the last uh, 60 years or more. I sat down with your cousin, Caroline, Kennedy, who's a dear friend of mine, and made the mistake of trying to talk to her about all of that, I felt like a North Korean in interrogator <laughs> uh, because it was so obvious. that, and, and in retrospect, for good reason, why she doesn't really like to revisit uh, all of that. Um, tell me about what it was like to grow up in that family, in the larger family and then I want to talk to you about the Shriver family, which has its own uh, unique identity. Yeah, well, I mean, of course, no one really knows 
anything other than their own experience. So I only know one family to grow up in, just like everybody else only knows one family. So I have nothing to compare it to. But most don't <laughs> do it under the glare of public uh, scrutiny at all times. Yeah, I just wouldn't know what it's like not to. So, yeah. uh, But anyway. How does that impact you, actually? Well, I think it in two ways, I'd say. The first is, I think, it growing up in my family, we were always invited to think big, to think that uh, you know, seemingly impossible things were possible, to think that maybe, uh, against all odds, you could do something incredible and the whole world might pay attention because we'd seen this happen uh, in our parents' generation over and over again, actually. So I think we, uh, the, the upside of growing up in a family that has the, the privilege of being uh, listened to or paid attention to or followed in some sense is that as a little kid, you start to think, well, all, you know, impossible things are really possible. Uh, I mean, the downside is, you know, you, you sacrifice a lot of family. I mean, you lose your parents a lot. You're alone a lot. You're, uh, you're never really clear on who you are as opposed to who everybody else is. Uh, I've spent my whole life with people asking me, which one are you? <laughs> <laughs> And that's okay. I'm sort of after about 45, (laughs) I finally got used to it. (laughs) Finally developed enough of an internal spine to be able to handle complete anonymity and personal confusion and and not being understood or known as an individual. But, you know, one of the great privileges of life is to have a family that in some ways defines you, that helps you, that supports you, that you're a part of. People are looking for belonging. People are looking for intimacy, for relationship, for the power that comes from the group. Uh, we got a lot of it. Sometimes we maybe it seems like too much, but it was a, it was uh, it is uh, a privilege to have parents and uncles and aunts like I had. You also, uh, uh, as a family, experienced a lot of loss, and you wrote in your uh, autobiography in, in 2014 a couple of things that um, that I that really struck me. Uh, you said one time when I was four, my mother came home to tell me my uncle had been murdered and I should run along and find something to do. And you said uh, uh, about these losses, and I don't need to rehearse what those losses were. Everyone knows them, that through those losses, I learned one of the most problematic lessons of my childhood, uh, grief uh, and other Emotional traumas are not to be dwelt upon and, in fact, are barely to be acknowledged. We had one unspoken rule as children, deal with loss on your own in whatever way you can. That's a tough, that is a very tough lesson. It is. Uh, And I, uh, you know, everybody has loss. Uh, Everybody has. uh, But most people don't have to face that. Nobody, uh, the the suck it up thing. uh, Well, and we did. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's, uh, you know, uh, I don't think my parents' generation had the tools or the uh, understanding of loss or grief that, you know, maybe we take for granted in today's uh, day and age. And so they were very much focused on the fact that we all had a faith that we shared that uh, promised clarity and, and uh safety in, in some future that we couldn't quite anticipate. And that uh, after that, the rest was to be, uh, uh, you know, just move on. You just keep going. I mean, I got that lesson over and over again as a kid, you know, somebody would die and just, okay, now you go sailing. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, you know, but you know, keep going. What, um, what did you, you have five children, grown children, mm. um, you and your wife, Linda. Um, what did you learn from that experience 
that has caused that has impacted on your own parenting? Well, I think uh, I think Linda and I parented differently than our parents, uh, but in both all four of our parents, I should say, uh, I think we tried to create much more of a open language around emotion. You know, a good emotion, positive emotions, negative emotions, they're all okay. I think we've uh, many in my, our generation have raised children to believe that it's healthy and, and important to be able to express your emotional uh, feelings at different times in your life, to be able to manage your stress, to develop strategies around that, to be able to connect with people when you need help, to seek help. Mm-hmm. So we, we've spent a, a fair amount of time trying to do that. I'm not sure how far you get, you know, because you're all the, we're all the victim of our parents. And I think at various times, my kids would I've, say- I've experienced that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say at various times, our kids would say, you know, dad, you never made this possible, or mom, we never talked about that. Uh, you know, Yeah, we but tried, at least they can say we, that. Yeah, that, that's right. At least that's they can an say important that. thing, yeah, you that know, is, to that. have that dialogue. Your parents uh, were luminescent figures, each in their own way. Your dad- uh, Sergeant Shriver was very much identified with uh, the initiatives he led, the Peace Corps, uh, VISTA, the War on Poverty, um, and was a really, um, as you, desc- you describe him so vividly in your book, but he wasn't a bullient character. Yeah, he was in every full way. of exuberance. Uh, I find it ironic that just last week uh, the current administration declared the War on Poverty. Uh, over because it had been successful in eradicating uh, poverty from the country. Yeah, uh, some sixty years later, they got to get out more. <laughs> um. It's unbelievable. It's well, it's uh, it's a different point of view. Uh, you know, my dad uh, was animated by an extraordinary faith. He just kept it so strongly in his center of his of his being, and by his uh, Catholic faith, his Catholic faith, and by uh, his belief that the, uh, every uh, person had a certain kind of spiritual strength and faith and openness and willingness to give of themselves. I mean, that was his big conviction. And my mom's too. They both are known, actually, if you think about it, David, as people who created movements driven by volunteers. In other words, they both understood that to ask people was not just a rhetorical or a political idea, but a concrete solution strategy for changing the world, for creating peace between countries that are at war. Ask young Americans to go live with them, yeah. to end uh, the discrimination against people with intellectual disabilities. Ask young Americans to cross the street, to enter the institution, to break down the wall, to play together. Ask you know, uh, people to create early childhood programs. So ask the mothers to come into the Head Start centers, volunteer and get paid to actually make sure their children get early supports that would make it more likely for them to be able to learn optimally. I mean, both my parents believed in faith as in the broadest possible sense, that everybody's got one, tap into it, uh, you know, uh, pull it out of people, invite them to find their best selves by giving themselves away. Yeah. Well, and and this sense that uh, we are about something larger than ourselves is uh, is important that that's that sense of the larger community of man is an important concept he embodied that i, I want to talk about your mom uh, extensively in a minute because it obviously is related to this cause that you've come to commemorate uh, on this visit um, your dad I, I remember because i was an admirer watching um, your dad's uh, funeral, mm. and Bill Clinton spoke, and he said something that that struck me. 
um, about both, it probably was revealing about both himself and your dad, but he was running Texas, the state of Texas, in 1972 for George McGovern. Your dad was McGovern's second nominee for vice president, his first, Tom Eagleton, having to leave the ticket because of uh, the disclosure that he had been treated for uh, depression, uh, a sad episode in our in our history. But your dad took on this task. It was not a winning proposition from the beginning. And Bill Clinton said he came down to Texas a few days before the election, and uh, he had this this zip in his step and this great enthusiasm. And I, and I, and I, he said, it was really hard for me to understand because he said, if you're in politics, you know that the worst thing next to death is losing. Yeah. And, um, but I think for my dad, the thing, the worst thing next to death was not competing and not being in the arena. I mean, he just wanted to be in the action. I mean, I remember driving to work with him. We, when we moved to Washington, we lived with my parents uh, for a short period of time. And I, they lived out in Maryland, and the office was downtown. I was driving down one day, uh, and I said to him, you know, wouldn't you like, you and mom, like to move downtown? You could be close to, uh, uh, you know, or, or move the office, I shouldn't say. I said, move the office out where you live. He said, hell no, I want to be down where the action is. This was at 87. <laughs> uh, so my dad wanted to be in the arena, and he wanted to be in the arena for things he believed in, and he wanted to... He wanted to almost magnet, you know, mysteriously communicate his deep belief to others. Uh, and so, you know, being asked to run for national office on the ticket, uh, I don't think he evaluated it according to the odds. I don't think he looked at it according to whether his political future would be helped or hurt by it, whether he would be enhanced or or diminished by the uh, association with Senator McGovern. I think he saw it as a chance to share his enthusiasm for the country, uh, the country he fought to defend, the country he fought to build up, the country he fought to make better. He wanted in. I mean, he just wanted in. Yeah, he also, I suspect, because of his faith and maybe because of the loss that your family experienced, understood that there actually were things worse than losing an election. Yeah, much. As competitive uh, as he was. He he also did uh, uh, a stint overseas uh, when you were a kid uh, as ambassador to France. Tell me about that and, and what, how that experience impacted on you. Well, we moved to France when I was, you know, eight years old. So I was a little kid. I didn't want to leave. I had friends, you know, all those kinds of things. But we moved and it turned out to be fantastic. I lived in Paris and rode the subway and ate French pastries. In the, t- in the hmm. meantime, of course, the country was, uh, we moved in 1968 you know, uh, in the yeah. spring of 1968, we came back, of course, during the summer of 68 as, as little children. Uh, <clears throat> France itself, Paris, was undergoing enormous turmoil. There were riots in Paris uh, in that period of time. The peace negotiations uh, to try to end the war in Vietnam were going on secretly in Paris at the time. Avril Harriman and Cyrus Vance were negotiating with their North Korean counterparts. All that was, of course, missing in my life. I was, um, uh, you know, just a kid going in and out of various elementary schools. Uh, but I think in some ways it impacted all of us, my siblings and I, in the sense that we, you know, we'd heard about the Peace Corps, we'd heard, but now we were living in a new country, learning a new language, seeing different cultures. It wasn't radically different, of course, from the United States. Mm-hmm. Paris is not exactly a developing country, that's for sure. But at least we started to see that the ways in which we could learn about other people were <clears throat> could be natural and joyful and, and hopeful. And I think all of us, 
uh, my siblings and I uh, had enormous, we have enormous affection for France, I think, as a function of having lived there at an early age, but also an appreciation for what the global platform of the United States can and should look like. Yeah. Uh, that's what I was going to ask. Did you get a sense of how the world looks at us? Well, in those days, the world admired us. I mean, the United States was the global icon to 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 Europe, certainly. I mean, we were we went to the commemoration of the invasion of Normandy at just, I think it was the 25th. You know, this was a recent event that the United States had liberated France. Charles de Gaulle, the general who was uh, in charge of the World War II French resistance was the president of the country. So World War II was a very vivid and active memory for the French, for the Germans, for the English. Uh, the United States, I mean, we were, my dad was the ambassador from the United States of America to a capital of Europe, a capital that had been liberated by Americans, a capital that had been reinvested in by Americans, a capital that uh, loved the United States. The great stars of French film and television would sing songs about the America. And nightclubs were, you know, you'd go in and be an American and people would toast you. Um, yeah. So it was a different Probably time. Probably to salute the fact that you were an eight-year-old in a saloon. <laughs> but, uh. You weren't supposed to pick that up, but we did. <laughs> the laws were loose when it came to <laughs> bouncers. But, but um, you know, one of the things that strikes me, uh, you know, I went and uh, saw uh, your your uncle, uh John F. Kennedy, when I was five years old, mm. when he was running for president, mm. and it was in this housing development, and I apologize to people who've heard this story here before, uh, Stuyvesant Town in Manhattan in New York, and it was built for returning war veterans. It was the middle of the day, as times were what they were then. Most of the men were at work, and mostly there were young moms who were with young kids, and I was one of the young kids who... Uh, was there, but his rhetoric very much was about uh, not our op- uh, not our individual opportunities, but the opportunities of the country, and not about what, uh, as he famously went on to say, the country could give to us, but what we should give to the country. And I realized this was a whole generation standing in front of him who had sacrificed enormously to save the country from fascism, to work through uh, a Great Depression. And there was this sense of not taking for granted the future, uh, something I think that my generation maybe is a little bit guilty of. We, we, we were handed something, um, and, uh, we take, uh, and we take for granted that it is enduring, but it's only enduring if you are willing to invest of yourself in, in it. Well, I, I mean, I... I Obviously, couldn't agree with you more, David. And I, I think the, uh, the, the challenge of taking for granted the country or trying to get everything you can out of the country or having a sort of a selfish or greedy approach to the country, I think is overstated. I think uh, average Americans still uh, give enormous amounts of time to their faith-based institutions, to their civic organizations, to their neighbors, indeed, to indeed. people who are in senior Well, you've city. seen it yourself. I've seen it myself. And I think the, the story of the American citizen activist, the citizen politician, if you will, the citizen uh, uh, who's committed to the future of the country, to his or her community in and of itself, I mean, that story is still alive. And well, we don't see it. The media misses it still largely, I think, uh, in my view at least. 
uh, skirts over it, looks for the big headline, looks for the clash, looks for the conflict, looks there's for the- There's plenty of clashes to be had. There are plenty of clashes to be had, but there's plenty of good stories to be mm-hmm. had too. And uh, if you look at this generation, I mean, the work I do around disability, intellectual disability, inclusion in schools and early childhood centers and healthcare, I mean, it's a booming transformation in the country right now. We're right in the middle of probably the greatest revolution on this on the part of this community in the way education takes place that's ever been held. Maybe, you know, you could say 94, 142 when the schools were forcibly, if you will, integrated. But now we're seeing relationships change. We're seeing friendships grow. We're seeing sports teams burgeon. We're seeing employment opportunities and transitions from school to work. I mean, things that we never dreamed were possible. Those of us like you who have been in this Mm-hmm. lived this life for, for decades, and if not, you know, centuries past. But no one, you know, again, it's not a headline story. It's a, it's a slow burn story. It's the slow transformation of the culture, the country, our hearts and minds. But it's a very, very good story, in my view, at least. Um, so what President Kennedy invited people to do uh, in 1960 or 59, maybe you saw him during the 60, campaign. 60, it was 10, yeah. 12 days before the election. So we, in did, New York did, City, did you which, give him a line, or did you give him a strategic shift that made the I, difference in I, Chicago? I, I was not a strategist in that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you are. I'm sure you are. But uh, but uh, um, uh, but he was he was he was encouraging an ethic of yeah. service. There's no. He was encouraging an ethic of service, but he encouraged an ethic of service that didn't feel like a duty or a guilt trip or a burden. I mean, people came to Washington after his election because they were so excited, yeah. right? I mean, they were like— no, I saw some of the same after the election of President Obama. Yeah, yeah. I think President Obama uh, uh, did inspire, particularly during the campaign, that same ideal uh, that, that, you know, I could go into this work of building up the country and I will be happier. I will find meaning in my life. I will see the purpose, not just in my country in a nationalistic or in an arrogant way, but in my country as an ideal that— the whole world could, you know, to play some part in. Does it sound jingoistic or, you know, uh, arrogant? Maybe it does to some, but to others, it sounds like an invitation to find your best self. You you have a, quite a educational pedigree. In between there, you flirted with the priesthood. Um, you and you you taught for fifteen years. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you choose teaching? And again, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want, it's not that I'm avoiding the discussion about your mom, but no, she's no. so central to yeah. the second half of our discussion. Yeah. Uh, why did you uh, choose teaching and why did you uh, leave teaching? Uh, well, I didn't leave. I just changed, uh, I changed job descriptions a little bit, but I didn't leave. Uh, I chose teaching, I think, uh, because I'd grown up around people talking about making a difference. Uh, policy, big ideas, speeches, grant forums. Uh, but I wanted something a little bit more hand-to-hand. I wanted to look a child in the eye and see if I could make a difference, if I could tilt my little tiny piece of the arc of history towards goodness, towards justice, towards opportunity, towards uh, equality. I wanted to get underneath the skin of the rhetoric I'd grown up l- listening to and uh, try to make a difference in a more personal, at a more uh, personal level. So uh, for me, the most powerful institution in the country is the school. Uh, it's the only place where almost every American family has an interaction with. It's 13 years in the life of the average child. It's 10 months a year, seven some plus hours a day. I thought to myself, if you want to try to make a difference, if you want to work on the peace and justice and 
and equality issues that my parents and their generation had been talking about in the day-to-day, it seemed to me that the school was the place to go. And I still believe that teachers are American patriots. I still believe that teachers are the most profound uh, people who can affect the life of a community outside, of course, parents. I still believe that schools have an enormous capacity to build a more inclusive and a more healthy future. So I'm very, I mean, I left the school system because I thought I could teach more and better, honestly, through the Special Olympics movement. I thought I could teach the same lessons I was trying to teach in classrooms through the experiences of unlocking the gifts and potential of people with intellectual differences and allowing them to become, in effect, teachers on their own of their own gifts, of their own message. Um, and I saw that as a very, you know, it's the same lesson I was trying to teach in a classroom I thought I could teach through these playing fields, and they have more than uh, uh, fulfilled the bill. Let me, um, let, let me ask you about public service. You're, uh, I, we met uh, first when uh, your brother Mark was uh, running for Congress. I worked for him. Uh, I was doing his media. You were directing me. It was everybody. Everybody had their role. Only once. <laughs> everybody had their role. But um, uh, Jeez, you have to remember that. But but uh, have you uh, have you considered public service? Uh, if why haven't you taken it up? And, well, and, and would would you? I mean, you're doing you're performing enormous yeah. public service, not just here but across the right. world. So let me stipulate that and save you the <laughs> the bother of doing that. But I'm talking about running for elective political office. office. You know, I I really never thought a political office was for me. I thought I wouldn't be good at it. I thought I'd be much better at doing what I'm doing, and I think I was right. I think this is the right work for me. I think it's important. I think it's uh, for me. It's fulfilling. Uh, I. I feel like I have a front row seat of the best of humanity, and I like it. I, I, I don't like the divisiveness. I don't like the, the, the vicious, mean-spirited nature that politics has adopted it, it, across the country. I don't think it's healthy. It doesn't make people happy. It doesn't make people good. It makes people angry, scared, anxious, depressed. But how do you change this vicious, mean-spirited nature of politics if people of goodwill uh, uh, are just so disgusted by it that they don't? run for office and try and change I think it's a great question. I don't know the answer to it other than I think we need a... I I think, I mean, almost every uh, system in the country has been... uh, Oh, jeez. That's okay. Go ahead. uh, Has been been changed by the generation we're living in, except the political system. I want to introduce everyone to the world of podcasts. Authentic, (laughs) real. That is a cell phone going off. Tim's wife Linda is <laughs> is is trying to kill this cell phone even as we <laughs> as we speak. Yeah, so I think we've got to get new and better people in, but I think we got to get you know the, when the system is as gerrymandered as it is, when when it's so polarized, when when the congressional districts are so pushing to the to the extremes of both parties, when. Uh, you know, when the leadership in Congress and so on is so uh, aggressive about using every possible issue as a weapon against the other guy, 
Um, we need some kind of a breakdown uh, that will allow us to rebuild. I think we're hitting the end of the, the potential of the system as we know it right now. I mean, we see it right in front of our eyes, the system dissembling every single day. We don't know who the president uh, is loyal to. We don't know who Congress is loyal to. We don't know who the Democrats, what they believe in, what Republicans believe in. We're, we're watching the dissolution of politics as I grew up thinking of it. Uh, I grew up with the party lever. I grew up thinking Democratic uh, values were consistent, were powerful, were important, were right. I grew up thinking that you know, if giving myself to the Democratic Party was giving myself to a cause larger than myself. I don't think there's a 15-year-old in America. I mean, maybe there are. You probably know them. But I don't think there's many who at 15 would approach either political party. I don't mean... It's, it's, I think there's a healthy skepticism. I think there's a healthy skepticism. And I think it's... Uh, I think we need fresh eyes, fresh ideas. Uh, so, I, look, I... I uh, you know, I have cousins that have gone into elective office. Uh, I have brothers uh, who have sought elective office, obviously uncles, and I admire it. It's super important. We Nothing could be more clear now uh, how important elective office is and how we need good people. Uh, but I just chose a different path. And that's, uh, that's the path you're going to continue down? Well, it's the only path I know, honestly. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's... Uh, I mean, I would love... If the question is what I like to have the ideas that emerge from the athletes of Special Olympics and their unified partners be paid attention to in public discourse, yes. Would I like to have schools become places where we educate the head and the heart, which is my uh, my uh, my professional work? Yes. Would I like to see inclusive health care, as we're working on in Special Olympics through our work with the Galasana Foundation and others around the world, to end discrimination against people with intellectual disabilities in health care systems, all disabilities, actually? Yes. Uh, do I find myself sometimes constrained by people dismissing uh, me or these messages as just the message of a cause or a charity or thank you very much, I'll give you 20 bucks and I'll leave me alone? That drives me nuts. So I'd like to have our uh, voices uh, more heard in the public discourse. Uh, but how to do that? I, I, I'm like everybody else. How's so this I call you and say, yeah. David, what should I do? <laughs> how's, this, how's this administration doing on these issues? Well, I mean, it's hard to know, honestly. I mean, uh, in our work in Special Olympics, we try to promote social inclusion in schools. The administration's budget has eliminated the limited, tiny little bits of federal funding we get every year, but the Congress, Republican-controlled Congress, restores it and grows it. It believes in it. I meet with Republican members of Congress all the time. Uh, they're full-throated supporters of the idea of making social inclusion a standard of American education. Um, it, so is that, I don't know, I don't know, you know, the Secretary of Education it, it has been a supporter of the Special Olympics movement. So, I, you know, I'm like everybody else. It depends on what you listen to on any given day. Mm -hmm. Is the work moving forward? Uh, yes, it's mm -hmm. moving forward in very important, I think, ways. We are listening to the margins in schools now, people who have sat in the short bus and sat on the special ed wing and sat alone at the lunch table, they are coming into the mainstream. Their voices, even if they don't speak, are being heard and listened to by their peers and their teachers. It's a beautiful transformation. Uh, are our politicians, um, is the administration on top of it? I, I would say hard to believe that that's the case. Let's talk about your, your mom. And, and as part of talking about your mom, uh, who I had the pleasure of meeting when I was working with your brother. Yeah. Um, talk about another character who, who played a big role 
in her life in the memoir you wrote, and that is your your aunt Rosemary. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I am of the. I think I'm the only one in my family who might say this, but I believe uh, that the inspiration for President Kennedy's "Ask Not" for my uncle Bobby Kennedy's uh, persistent. Uh, commitment to people living on the margins, to my Uncle Ted's long career in the Senate fighting for uh, inclusion and so on. I think they all came from Rosemary. I think it came from being raised early age with a sister who was excluded by the culture. Tell, tell for people who yeah. don't know, tell yeah. her story. So my, my Aunt Rosemary was born with an intellectual disability uh, in the 19, uh, early part of the 20th century, 1921, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, this was an era when people with intellectual disabilities were routinely institutionalized, sterilized against their will, uh, allowed to die in neonatal wards, and so on. So it was a very draconian, very harsh period. Eugenics was capturing the public attention in very open and explicit ways. Uh, uh, so uh, in that context, nine children uh, yeah. my grandparents had, and they decided to keep their daughter at home. There was no school for her, no doctor for her, no therapeutic program for her, but they kept her at home. So there they grew up, Jack and Joe and Bobby and Teddy and Jean and Pat and Eunice and Kathleen all grew up with Rosemary. So every day they woke up and saw that there was no school for their sister. And every day they were told by their mother, if you're going out to play, touch football or go sailing, you include your sister. So these powerful words, include your sister, uh, I think resonated through the almost the DNA of that generation. Uh, and <clears throat> I think there's good enough evidence, at least from my point of view, that President Kennedy and, and my mother, for sure, felt not just the anger that came from seeing their sister treated unjustly by the culture, but also the intense joy they got from being with her. And so, you know, I think the first moment in which the president might have thought that it was better to give than to get was probably sitting on a sailboat with their sister, Rosemary. Uh, having been told to take her sailing and having uh, learned that uh, she, he, that he could find his best self by giving himself a little bit uh, to someone who needed support, her story is uh, uh, is 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 one of challenge, not just because of um, of the, uh, the intellectual disabilities with which she was born, but also because of decisions that were made on on her behalf. Yeah, well, I mean. Uh, it was a tough time. So my grandfather, who was a, a fix-it kind of a guy, you know, he was a, a take-no-prisoners, uh, very successful businessman, a cutthroat uh, operator, and a uh, very active political actor, and so on and so forth, in the 1920s and 30s, in the Roosevelt administration and others. He wanted to fix his daughter. He wanted a cure. He wanted to get things done. Uh, he wanted to make life better, he, you know. So he was all about getting, uh, getting, the, getting the solution. So at one point, he was advised by doctors that uh, by giving her a, an operation on her brain that maybe they could correct everything. This was after dozens and dozens of other strategies, you know, medicine, medications and therapies and so on and so forth. Uh, so in her early 20s. So in her early 20s, she was given a prefrontal lobotomy, which caused her to lose her speech and her, a lot of her mobility for the rest of her life and uh, significantly in, uh, made her more challenged than she had been beforehand. So it's a, it's a heartbreaking story. I mean, it's a, it's a terrifying— And, and at first she was sent to an institution in upstate New York. For a short time, but then to the nuns in Wisconsin, where I just visited— St. Coletta's. Uh, yeah, to St. Coletta's, uh, uh, to the nun Sisters of St. Francis, who— where she, my grandfather built her a house there, which I just visited a few weeks ago. Um, it's a beautiful place. Uh, she had a, a beautiful life like every young person in some ways. She 
rebuilt uh, her life there after leaving home. Uh, you know, it's a heartbreaking story in some ways, David, but in other ways, it's a story of its time. And it's a story where I, I would say, at least for those first 20 plus years, she was able to inspire people like my mother, uh, who would then give the rest of her life. Did your mother, uh, I read somewhere that, that your grandfather never visited her. Uh, I, and I, I had a hard time understanding that. Yeah. Um, and maybe you can explain it. Um, well, I, I have a hard time understanding it too, uh, honestly. Uh, but I think my, the best sense I have of it is that he was so deeply ashamed of himself, probably, mm -hmm. and uh, so deeply ashamed of what had happened that he couldn't bear the pain in, in all likelihood. That's, that's my only guess. Uh, but, was there a calculating political, you know, people want to attribute all kinds of malicious things to my grandfather, uh, uh, you know, and they, obviously they have the right to say whatever they want. But I think when you look at what all her Rosemary's brothers and sisters did with the rest of their lives, the commitment to disability rights and the ADA, the commitment to mm -hmm. 94, 142 and inclusive education, the work of Special Olympics to transform hearts and minds all over the world, the tireless efforts of my grandmother to visit institutions and locate rehab centers and places like uh, Misericordia here and to support yeah. financially all this work. It's clear to me that their love of Rosemary never diminished, but it was uh, in some ways... Uh, I think changed by uh, her. And did 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 your mom and her brothers and sisters did they visit her and see? Well, her? my mother did. I mean, Rosemary was a constant guest in our house. She'd come two, three, four times a year for a week or ten days, mm -hmm. let stay with us with with a nun, and my mother would go back out to Wisconsin. So uh, we grew up with Rosemary, uh, probably the most common visitor to our house, more than any other aunt or uncle or uh, so. Uh, you know, my mom, uh, I think it, particularly after the, uh, the, after the election of President Kennedy, uh, saw her opening to sort of pull Rosemary back, you know, almost from the dead, I would almost say, you know, that she, she, she had been in some ways lost to the family, but my mother was determined to resurrect her. Mm -hmm. And so she literally uh, put her on airplanes and literally brought her to the dinner table and literally took her into the swimming pool and literally uh, made us walk with her and, and give her... Uh, you know, spend time with her in the in the living room and so on, in order to uh, confront all that pain with her own determination to change it. Uh, and it wasn't just that, uh, because she did uh, many other things. Even in those early years, talk about uh, talk about these events in your uh, back backyard. When I went and visited with her at your home there, your family home, uh, Mark was telling me about this, that you wrote so beautifully about, about these events when people with, uh, with disabilities, yeah. young people came and kids without disabilities yeah. and played. I mean, I just was with one of the volunteers who was 16 at the time of uh, the Camp Shriver was started in 1962. Uh, she's still around, has wonderful pictures of those days. I mean, you know, my mother basically had one too many calls from an, a mother of a child with an intellectual disability who said, there's nothing for my kid. Yes. And she just heard it one too many times. She'd heard her mother say those words, there's nothing for Rosemary, nothing. I, 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 Tim, I can remember so vividly my experience as a parent and yeah. that heartbreaking sense yeah. of not being able to provide my daughter with... Um, 
the activities that other kids had yeah. and the loneliness yeah. that was associated uh, with that. So I very much appreciate. I mean, that's uh, what, what my mother, my mother was not a parent, uh, uh, but she was a sibling and she saw her own mother with that heartbreak and she saw her own sister with that. And I think it was some combination of those things. And, and she just got that one phone call that were too many. And she said, well, hell with it. You come bring your child to my house. We're going to have a summer camp right here. You can't get your child anywhere else. Come to my house starting next week. And I don't think she had a clue where that was going to end up. But I think she, uh, she had the fierce uh, determination to overturn that horrible uh, shame and loneliness experience uh, because she knew it was unfair. You know, she knew it was, uh, it was unjust. It just yeah. wasn't right. You know, it's not like circumstances provided for these things and you just have to live with it. No, she didn't see it that way. She said, this is wrong. Um, now, maybe this is an indelicate way to describe it, but just having met her, reading what you've written about her, and stuff, she was not, uh, she wasn't um, very laid back. No. She was kind of a pile driver. When yeah. she was committed to a cause, she moved moved a lot of, a lot of heavy furniture around. She was a force of nature. She was formidable. And uh, she didn't really need much validation for her ideas. She, she was kind of, she shaped them on her own. And then it was up to the rest of us to try to keep up. Because, I mean, even the first games here in Chicago in 1968, just six weeks after my Uncle Bobby lost his life, I mean, who, who wouldn't have decided to postpone Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the mayor daily, the city was uh, tense, a race, uh, uh, violence, poverty, um, the war in Vietnam. I mean, these were things that were toxic at the time. Dr. King and my Uncle Bobby both having been murdered within the last previous few weeks. I mean, most people would say, hey, let's, let's, let's put this off. Not her. She knew what she wanted. She wanted to change the world for people with intellectual disabilities, and she was determined. She just saw it from within. And, you know, when people see things from within, it's a different kind of mission. You know, it's, you can almost detect it in folks. They, they're like, oh, you know, when, when that person walks in the room and they know what they want and they're not negotiating, they're just, as you might want to say, pile driving, your job is to either get out of the way or help. And my mother inspired people to, to help. Uh, some people got out of the way. I mean, people would often say that, you know, even in the Senate, you know, uh, you know, Senator Hatch was fond of saying that if ever he wanted something from my uncle, Senator Kennedy, he would just uh, call my mother. And uh, because he knew that my uncle uh, Ted could never uh, say no to my mother. <laughs> so, you know, here in Chicago, um, uh, we associate the Special Olympics not just with your family, but with uh, Ann Burke, who's now on the Supreme yeah. Court here, yeah. who was a, who was at that time a a, a playground instructor, and worked with uh, kids with disabilities and mm-hmm. saw uh, and saw the need. Talk about how that all came together. Well, I mean, Ann is an absolute hero of our movement and a hero of the larger disability rights movement. She, she, she got, you know, she, she was hired on a grant that my mom gave the city of Chicago because the park district had no adaptive physical education and no programs for kids with special needs. So my mom uh, and the Kennedy Foundation, the small foundation that she was leading, gave a grant and they hired, went out to look for a physical education person who could work for the summer and work with kids with special needs, and Ann was hired. So the link between the two of them goes back really to the beginning of Anne's career. And Anne, 
uh, from everything I can tell, just had the same kind of fierce determination. She'd knock yeah. on doors. She'd go down to the big shots in the Chicago Park District and uh, union halls and so on and say, I've got an event. We've got you. We need you. To, and people would ridicule her and say, that's outrageous. How could you put those kids on display? This is embarrassing. This is shameful. And she just saw what sports and play could do. Let's remember the primary way in which human beings learn is through play from infancy onward. And Anne and my mom both had this common conviction that in play we could do a lot more than score goals on a soccer field. We could learn about one another. We could transform the way we think and feel, get out of our heads and all the ways in which we're judging. What's your syndrome? What's my syndrome? No, no. On the field, you're a striker. You're a goalkeeper. You're a point guard. You're a uh, breaststroke swimmer. Whatever you are, you get a new identity. And Anne knew this. You know, She knew that if she could get those kids out from behind those shadows and let them play that the city would see them and the mayor would welcome them and the unions would applaud them and the powers that be might say to say to each other uh, let's change the city and that's exactly what happened on in in 1968 one of the things i'm uh, that makes me um happy is that she sits on the supreme court in the state and it's good to have someone on the court, who sees the world through those eyes, who sees who sees people who others might look past, uh, I think uh, it makes us a more just uh, it makes us a more just place. So talk about from 50 years ago, talk about how this movement uh, grew, and you have been extraordinarily uh, successful in growing it well past the borders of this country. You, it was already global by the time you took over, but you've taken it to a whole nother level. Well, I think, uh, I think the you know, people say, how did it grow? It grew because the idea is irrefutably resonant in the hearts and souls of human beings, no matter where they grow up or where they live. It's, uh, there's something about a Special Olympics invitation that says, I've got something extraordinary for you. And you may be a volunteer or a coach, you may be a sponsor. Uh, you know, everybody thinks they're giving to the athlete, yeah. but almost there's not a single volunteer I've ever met who doesn't say, oh my God, what I got back. Mm-hmm. The sense of purpose, the sense of joy, the sense of un, uh, lacking in judgment around people, just the chance to be free for, even if it's for an hour or two, of, of all that dualistic, negative, stereotyping, judgmental. And one of the things about these Special Olympians as a class is they're the least judgmental people in they've the been, world. They've been judged the most harshly, and they tend to be the least judgmental yeah, people in return. Yeah. And that's true, in, again, in every country. So, you know, today, David, the movement is cradle to grave. We start at two, you know, six months to two years old with l- programs that support early childhood development. We continue through schools and uh, all the way through the life cycle. We have programs that uh, empower our uh, our athletes as, as self-advocates. We have health programs I mentioned earlier. Uh, and these are programs that are growing all over the world. I mean, our next World Games will be in the heart of the Arab world in the United Arab Emirates, um, where uh, there's never been an Olympic uh, event of any and when, kind. When will that be? That will be in March of 2019. I hope you'll come. If you're not, it's 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 not in an uh, in an active election cycle, so okay. there'll be a lull. Uh, and I'm uh, retired anyway. I'm yeah, a, I'm you a can do whatever you want. Now, right? Yeah. <laughs> we can do some good podcast. I mean, that's an interesting country. They got a they've got a minister of tolerance in that country. They have a minister of happiness in that country. They have a minister of youth in that country. Uh, it's not because the country's perfect, but the country is on an agenda, focused on an agenda of transforming itself into 
a place where an ancient religious tradition, Islam, an ancient political culture uh, that comes from the desert there can become a modern, contemporary, tolerant, open democracy. I mean, it's, it's not there. No one there would say that, but it's a fascinating How place. How do the, do the, is it like the, the larger Olympic movement um, in that uh, countries compete for I wish they competed to... more we, we it's more of a partnership and in, in, uh, we do get multiple bids for world games mm-hmm. uh, but uh, world leaders if you're listening yeah if you're listening yes we've got uh, we've got the 2021 games uh, winter games which we're still finalizing a site for and then 23 uh, we'll be looking for uh, we've got some interest from Russia from for 2023 and Germany uh, so we'll see how these things uh, land, but we 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 don't cost anything like the Olympics. We're not, you know, we don't build stadiums, we don't build mm-hmm. museums to ourselves, we don't uh, have billion-dollar you know television contracts and all that kind of stuff. We just bring the best of let the human the, spirit. Let the record note that uh, Mr. Shriver just went negative on the whole Olympic <laughs> movement. But, um, you know, I have to say that having been a, a, to more than. Um, uh, more than a few of these events, more than I can count. Uh, I can personally attest to what you're saying, that the joy of the participants and the joy of the volunteers is palpable. And, uh, and it's, not just the, it's not just the participants who, who end up stepping on the platform to get medals. Right. It's, it's, the, it's the joy of competition. It's the joy of being with each other. And for the volunteers, it's a joy of it's the joy of giving and receiving from them. It, it is a, it is really uh, a remarkable thing uh, to see and um, uh, and 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 worthy of uh, worthy of support in every in every way. Now, talk about uh, you you you've been transforming uh, the mission. Yeah, uh, in some ways, or at least building on it. Yeah, talk about that. I mean, I think the I think the main message of our movement today is that we're a movement uh, not just for people with intellectual disabilities, but from them. And the idea of a movement that focuses on inclusion. Most of our growing programs are what we call unified. So the team might be a relay team in a swim race, or a soccer team, or a basketball team. Half the members of the team might have an intellectual challenge and some kind of difference, and the other half don't. But they're learning. The sport is teammates. They're competing as teammates. They're winning and losing as teammates. And all of a sudden, the labels and the, uh, the stigma starts to yield at a whole new level. And all of a sudden, Special Olympics becomes a movement not for people with intellectual disabilities, but for everybody. And so uh, my wife, Linda, you know, started a local unified sports basketball team when our kids were young. And all five of our kids played on Special Olympics teams for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, every year, every winter, as athletes, not as volunteers or as coaches or as donors, not as though they were coming just to help, but they came to play. This is a future that, you know, I, I, I like to think we've got a Title IX type movement in front of us. Maybe we won't get the legislation that Title IX produced that allowed girls to have equal access to sports uh, that boys. We think that's shocking that it didn't exist, but it did, and it required a federal law to change it. Maybe we don't need a federal law, but I hope someday every high school in America will have a boys team and a girls team and a Special Olympics unified sports team. And young kids with Down syndrome who are five foot tall will uh, get a varsity letter for 
playing basketball and they'll be roasted and toasted at pep rallies and they'll be written up in school newspapers and they'll be heroes of the school walking down the hall and on the bus and in the lunchroom just like any other kid might be. I think sports can do that for us. So we're very much in the inclusion revolution uh, way of thinking these days. And so we're kind of expanding the universe of opportunity to people all over the world. Join the inclusion revolution, pledge to be a person who grows up learning how to include, play unified, learn to live unified. You know, sometimes people say, well, it sounds like you're getting political. And I said, look, we're not partisan. Uh, we're not, uh, uh, you know, we, we don't have a system of government we, had, we support. We don't have a party platform. But if being inclusive is political, then we're political because we will not compromise on that, and we will not allow our athletes to live half a life, and we will not tolerate the injustice and discrimination that too frequently persists. You know, uh, I want to talk to you about, and, and you and I have had some discussions about this uh, before. Um, you know, I heartily embrace uh, uh, what you're doing. I, I do, you know, I, having lived these issues, mm. I, I have my own perspective on them. We uh, moved... Uh, specifically moved to a community that uh, included uh, our daughter in classes um, from the time of middle school through uh, high school. And um, the challenge of it was that um, not only were there big uh, sort of gaps in intellectual growth that and capacities, but also, and more, maybe more important, in emotional uh, in emotional growth. So the, the things that 15-year-old girls were talking about were a lot different than what my daughter was talking about when right. she was 15. Right. And she found herself gravitating to peers who shared right. her experience right. and so on. So I guess what that, where that left me was that we ought to create a world of options and choices. Yeah, I don't think inclusion means any one particular strategy. In, to me, inclusivity is a way of thinking. So uh, people sometimes would accuse Special Olympics of not being an inclusive worldview. When people come to these events, there may be only people with intellectual disabilities on the track, but that doesn't mean it's not inclusive. That doesn't mean it's not respectful. That doesn't mean there's not room for difference. I like the term diff-ability because it's actually more scientifically correct. Your daughter may have some things in common with other girls or women her age, but she may, there may be other people who she also has things in common with that are, have very different patterns and ways of thinking. People with Down syndrome are not the same as people with autism. They're not the same as people with Williams syndrome or people with seizure disorders and so on. So different abilities to make the country safe for difference to end discrimination against people who have disabilities and replace it with respect for diff abilities <laughs> is to me the sweet spot. I don't prescribe to anybody, whether they have a disability or not, where they belong on a sports team or where they belong in a school. They should absolutely have choices. But inclusivity, in my view... How about where they should live? Where they should live. I, I visit communities that are... This is a battle that I've had. Of course, you know? I know. And there, there's a lot of ideologues in our, in our field that feel very strongly that only one solution is right. Uh, there are vulnerabilities to the large congregate care facilities. And that, we've seen those. And I'm sure you've seen them. Yeah. But there are vulnerabilities to the loneliness not, I mean, of you isolation. Know, uh, you yeah. mentioned Misericordia. My, yeah. my daughter lives there. She, um, and she has such a full life. I yeah. can tell you that 
20 years ago, we were worried if she'd even survive because she had epilepsy and she was cascading uh, downward. Mm. And, um, you know, when you have a child with these kinds of struggles, you reach a point where whatever your vision was the day that child was born, what you what you hope for and pray for is that someday they'll be happy and healthy every day. Right. And uh, my daughter's happy and healthy every day, and I'm so grateful for that. And she is in a in a larger setting with mm-hmm. lots of I mean a very great place with lo- uh, lots of in- individual kind of options for people within it. But she she feels like she's part of a community. Yeah. And but that's what's missing for so many people in the world today. Forget yes. whether you have a disability or not. I think there are – look, people don't like larger group f- living facilities like your daughter's in for one reason. They think they're vulnerable to creating abusive relationships between staff and residents and those kinds and of things. We've, and as I said, the history of it yeah. is there were such yes, places. Ms. Ricordi was born because Sister Rosemary Connolly, who runs it, was to take uh, uh, on the uh, direction of the – the, the archdiocese take young children who were six. She was caring for them and had disabilities to the state. Mm-hmm. And she took the first one over there when they were six, looked around, took the child back, and said to the archdiocese, we are not going to send these children yeah. there. Yeah. And she created instead this loving yeah. environment. So we all ought to fight abuse. Right. And, and by the way, not just in large settings, but in smaller settings, yeah. because we've seen abuses there as well. Of course. Uh, uh, but loneliness also is a, is a plague yes. for our population. Yes. And, uh, yes, it is. And, you know, you have great co- examples of community living, Misericordia, but also the L'Arche communities that are growing up around mm-hmm. the world, which were founded in France by Jean Vanier, who's a living saint, where people with and without intellectual disabilities live in community mm-hmm. together in homes designed for their shared uh, community life. I mean, these are models that people are attracted to, and we, we, we should always be wary of labels that stigmatize, isolate, and humiliate, but we should not be as so strident in our view of what the right or the wrong solution to that yeah. is, that we don't recognize love when we see it, mm-hmm. and we don't seek belonging and community when we can get it, and for our population, as well as for the rest of us. I mean, you say your daughter's happy and healthy. I have five children. That's all I want for my yes. children, too. Yes, I have so, two others, and I wake up every day <laughs> hoping for the same thing, yeah. but the odds for her were longer. Of course, but all mm-hmm. I mean is... You know, to hope for and to have that be an outcome on any given day. I mean, it could change tomorrow, right? Yes. You're 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 a dad. I'm a for dad. any kid. for any um, kid. No. But on any given day, to think your children are happy and healthy is the greatest joy you can have. Yes. So she's living in a place where she's happy, where she's she feels belonging, feels a sense of purpose. Maybe has work that she yeah, she, she, does, she likes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's the that's the brass ring. Yeah. Um, or the gold medal, I should say. You should exactly. <laughs> um, I can't uh, finish without talking about your siblings because it, <clears throat> you're you, you're not alone in giving back. And uh, my daughter was also a uh, uh, a consumer of uh, Best Buddies, mm-hmm. which was a program that your brother Anthony uh, started. Your brother Mark uh, is a leader of the Save the Children uh, Federation. Uh, Federation. You're a uh, your sister Maria, uh, you know, famously active on issues in, in, uh, relating to women and girls. Mm-hmm. Um, you have uh, all uh, taken the lessons of your of your parents yeah. and and acted on them. 
And your faith. I think we've taken, uh, and my brother Bobby uh, yeah, also you know, has raised any. over $100 million to help the Special Olympics movement grow throughout Africa and Latin America and so on. Who I met when he was a fine young reporter for the Chicago that's Daily right, News. That's right, that's right, that's right. we were the, young. Uh, I mean, I think the thing, you know, people say, well, your parents taught you to service. I think we've all, uh, I, would say, I think I speak for all my siblings, that the work you've just described is the best work you could get. Uh, there has been... Uh, nothing but uh, joy from this work. Anthony's extraordinary work with best buddies all over the world. Mark on uh, advocacy for children. I mean, Maria on women, Alzheimer's Bobby with the music and entertainment world trying to bring their energy with Bono and others to issues like AIDS and disability. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is work that is, um, you know, lucky you if you can get it and lucky us that we did. Well, uh, as we recall the... Special Olympics, uh, the inception of it 50 years ago. Let us remember your mom and her indomitable spirit that uh, that made uh, this possible. And uh, I just want to thank you on behalf of uh, my daughter and so many others who have benefited from uh, from this incredible program over so many years. Where you've you've changed lives, which, as you say, is the best work you can get. Well, thank you, David. It's a it's a it's a, it's a sacred trust. I think no matter what your religious tradition or nationality, people come to this work feeling that they've been given a sacred trust. This is at 50 years. It's our chance to give our legacy to the next generation, to hand it on in a way that the movement is strong, that it is a movement, not just a program, that it is a way of life, uh, a holy, if I can even use that language, mm -hmm. way of life, uh, where an open heart and a generous and gentle heart uh, allow people to see the world at its best and to hope for the best and bring out the best in others. These are gifts that the world needs now more than ever. And uh, so we head into our second half century confident that the we've just begun, uh, that this population of people has a lot to teach the world and we intend to give them the chance to do it. Well, maybe the best way to uh, sign off is to recall the words of your uncle that here on earth, God's work must truly be our own. You're doing God's work, and we're very appreciative. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.